Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from among you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of God. We all recognize problematic behaviors in ourselves and in others. Uh, we get impatient and quickly explode with anger. Um, we wind up gathering and talking about people who are not present, slandering. And those behaviors we can recognize often come out of things going on within us, desires, emotions, where maybe because we envy someone that we should be faithful or loyal to, we're willing to enter into gossip, or maybe because of some greedy impulse, we're willing to cross a moral boundary. So all of us are trying to deal with uh, somehow restraining this in ourselves, but also living in the world with, with human beings that uh, all struggle in this way. And how do, we, how do we protect ourselves? How do we control others? How do we create a safe environment? Well. Jesus comes uh, inviting us to follow him and calling us into a very different way of life. And it's based on certain assumptions that he has. So he has teaching on how to live, but it's not as simple as learning rules and commandments and doing them because the problem is deeper, it's much more complex. So we're looking at a section of the book of Ephesians chapter four, and actually we're 
at this point, we're going to slow down the sermon series a bit and take, you know, six or eight weeks just finishing out the fourth chapter because there's a lot of details here of things that are very deep in, in how we struggle, things like anger, uh, sexuality. There's a number of topics in this section that we'll look at. But this week and next, we're looking at framing what, what the problem is because Jesus um, offers a way forward, but it assumes a certain assessment of what's going on. And part of the Bible's assessment of, of why we struggle deeply as we do is what's described in verse 18 as alienation from the life of God. Um, that's hard for us to take in. How could that really be the issue? We don't see God. Uh, maybe we're not experiencing God as we should. So how could that be the problem? But that actually, from the Bible's perspective, is the source of the problem. The fact that we have trouble seeing God, understanding, knowing God, and really walking with God creates the kind of turmoil, the kind of issues that express itself uh, in our behaviors, in our actions, in our thinking, with our words. And so uh, my analogy, the, the, the context of a world alienated from God and how that affects each of us and how we share this world and uh, how that's affecting one another. When you think of a, a prison system, prisons typically have everything you need for life. So if somebody's sentenced for 40 or 50 years, you should be able to sustain them. So they have food and liquids. Um, typically, uh, inmates are let outside to get air and some exercise and there's activities and whatever the case is. And yet you wouldn't say a prison has, has what leads to flourishing. It's not an environment where you really expect people to prosper. And so I was reading recently an essay by a formerly incarcerated individual talking about what's termed the hardened criminal. There are some people that it seems like no matter what you do, no matter how much you try to help, no matter how much you threaten, no matter how much you invest, there are some people that are just hardened. Um, but he was... Uh, thinking about, reflecting on his own experience, saying, is there something about the prison system that, that actually produces hardened criminals or hardens those that go in? You know, logic would say, uh, after several miserable years in that environment, anyone coming out would have learned their lesson, so they would live a straightforward, upright life to avoid having to go back. But he talked about the social context, subtle things like, for instance, laughter. He says, when you're in prison, you, you, you quickly uh, figure out that you need to be careful uh, about what you laugh at and how often you laugh, uh, not only to avoid offending somebody, thinking you're laughing at them, but, but laughter could, could give the impression you're weak. And so you need to put on a stern face so people assume you're not somebody to mess with. And he talks about relationships that are very practical, that people will do things for one another, but in corrupt ways. And so you don't really have confidence. Anybody has your back. And then you're being mistreated by prison guards. Uh, and, and the whole environment, his experience was, if you went in there not hardened, there's a good chance that you might leave uh, the more time you've spent there, uh, being shaped in a character that you're supposed to be angry, militant, dangerous, threatening, divisive, these, these kinds of things. Um, a world alienated from the life of God, where, where the Bible pictures God who gives life, sustains life, promotes life, wants us to flourish and thrive. What are the effects of, of this alienation where we don't see God, we don't know God, we're not experiencing God? 
And what we experience is our envy and our greed and our anger and our bitterness, and that's how we're treating one another. It creates a hardening environment where, yes, we can live, we can be sustained, but, but are we going to flourish? Are we going to reach uh, the fullness of who we can be? The Bible says no. And therefore, uh, Jesus calls us to live a radically different life with thorough change. That's part of Ephesians 4. There's a way of life that's natural to us that, that most of us would be living if it wasn't for this invitation where Jesus says, but if you follow me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to transform every area of your life. So it's not simply that, that I'm gonna make you a religious person, but faith in me is meant to renew who you are and change all of how you think. So as we begin this morning looking at that, I wanna start with the topic of corrupt deceitful desires. This is the first thing I want to look at in the passage. Corrupt, deceitful desires. There's a problem deep enough in us that comes out that we can't just have superficial um, responses to. Behavioral change, willpower is not enough. So for example, if you have mold in your house, certain environments like a bathroom, mold is somewhat typical because it's a very moist environment. And so if you see mold, there's products you can buy and you can wipe it off and you may have to manage that. But, but if you're finding a, a part of your home where you're not expecting mold and it shows up on the wall, uh, on the one hand, you could just wipe it off and you could try to disinfect, um, but it raises the question, why is the mold there? Mold makes sense in a bathroom. Mold doesn't necessarily make sense, you know, uh, in your bedroom. And so is there a leak somewhere in the pipes behind the wall? Um, in which case, what you would normally do by wiping it off isn't going to be effective. And so if the mold is deeply in there, um, it's quite a problem because you need to know what kind of mold it is. Trying to deal with it could be dangerous for your health. Um, and it could be hard to really root out the problem. And so one option is just to ignore it as much as you can and keep wiping it off whenever you see it. But the concern is, will that mold affect your health? If you're starting to get headaches, if you're starting to feel fatigue and the mold is there, wiping it off uh, isn't dealing with the deep problem. On the other hand, if you think of, well, I'm gonna go deep, what gets rid of mold? Could, could, does mold um, survive fire? No, well then set the wall on fire and you'll get rid of your mold problem. So you won't have mold, but you also won't have a place to live. And so uh, what, what are the options in between ignoring it and doing nothing or completely destroying it and destroying everything? That's where it gets complicated and expensive. Uh, that's the picture that Jesus gives us of the lives that we live, that whatever we're thinking, we could ignore things and just say we're okay and try to do the best of it, but, uh, but where we, we continue to experience life in a declining kind of way, or we can come in with some militant approach where we try to destroy all that's wrong, but we inadvertently destroy all that's good. Jesus is saying this is a, a actually um, quite a, a precarious situation, and I'm going to come in and I'm going to lead you forward, but you're going to need to trust me. So verse 22, this, this call to put off our old self, our identity, our habits, our patterns, our way of thinking, we're called into to, to a thoroughly renewed life. So, so, so the old self is described as having things which belong to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And so it's that phrase, corrupt through deceitful desires. Our desires get corrupted. So the problem is not desire. 
We should desire things. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We should long for things to be good. We should desire it. The problem is not that we desire things, but that corruption comes into our desires, attaches itself to our desires, and then we desire the wrong things or we desire good things, but with desperation. And that's where um, things get overtaken. So the concept of corruption in the Bible, you know, in the very beginning talks about good and evil. We think of them as two distinct things. So choose what's good in life and avoid what's evil. But corruption gives the picture that actually what's good has something parasitic attaching to it. So now everything in a certain sense is tainted. So you can't avoid the evil because the evil and the good wind up being intermixed. And so you may have a desire that is so absent of good that people could say that's an evil desire. What you want to do is problematic. And you may have a, a desire that's so, uh, the influence of evil is so slight that they would say that's a really good desire. Most of us live with our mixed hearts and desires where you have certain desires that are problematic and you recognize it, but you have certain desires that are good and yet corruption comes in. Wanting people to appreciate you. That's a good desire. There's nothing wrong. It's not egotistical. It's not self-centered. But when that desire really takes root, so then you get offended very easily when people are not approving of you, or you're getting angry because the world is not acknowledging you, then that desire is starting to take control. Or sexual desire. Sexual desire is a good thing given by God. Um, but once you start to see, for instance, if, if you want to act in a way where you're going to ignore um, the possibility of consent. Your desire is so strong that that's not important to you. As a society, we're saying that's harmful. Now, the desire, maybe we can understand it, but that desire, that strength of it, uh, this is not good. And so the picture is that, that corruption comes to our desires, so we have bad desires, but even our good desires have potential to be functioning in harmful ways in our lives. And so our corrupt desires could become deceitful. We could want certain things so much that we're being deceived by our very longings. We desire things that cloud our judgment and therefore we become uh, self-deceived. We try to deceive others. So verse 18 to 19 describes uh, the problem of, of, of those who live in this former manner of way of life. It's due to the hardness of heart. They've become callous. So it's that hardening that callousness, because we're unable to manage what's going on, we're, we're unable to correct it. And because we're alienated from God, the picture is there's this, it's like there's this hard surface between us and God, and everything is growing without uh, God's good influence, without God's light, God's life, God's watering everything. And therefore, within our hearts and minds, as things are festering and growing, um, the problems are taking over everything. Uh, uh, affecting everything until we become more and more hardened to God. The, the self-deceitfulness makes it so that we don't want the solutions that are offered to us. We resent them or we don't understand them. So, uh, you know, this analysis reminds us why um, sort of maybe the, the most obvious approach today, which is to look within and find your true self, is insufficient. There's something right about it, um, especially when you look at how society normalizes certain things. And you want to look in and find out, well, who am I actually? Not by how other people are trying to define me. The, the, the effort to do that makes a lot of sense. But if the truth is that there's something wrong within us, then looking for who you really are, looking to find life within yourself, 
actually uh, is part of this downward spiral. Jesus is saying, actually, if you want to find who you really are and the life that is within yourself, yeah, you don't want to go back to society and their norms. You want to look beyond to what nobody is seeing. So uh, the first thing, we are corrupt through deceitful desires. Now, here's the second uh, aspect of this passage where it talks about darkened understanding. So with this inner world alienated from the life of God, it's not simply that we want things that are problematic or we want good things that become problematic, um, but, but that deceptive aspect influences our thinking. And so one of the faculties that God has given us, the ability to reason, to think, to analyze, winds up um, not always functioning as it should because it's under the control of our deceitful desires. And so in verses 17 and 18, it says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The Gentiles are the people who don't know God. They, don't, they haven't committed to life with God. Ephesians is presenting to, to the Ephesians church, that was all of you. Um, so now you are invited into life with God. So don't continue to walk as everyone else does in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. So everything gets affected, even our minds and our reason. So sometimes we think that moral problems are about desire and impulse, um, but our thinking is neutral. But the picture here is if corruption is making its way into our lives and if our desires are that powerful, then it actually is influencing our thinking. So we're not seeing clearly what feels logical and rational to us is sometimes uh, biased and we're not aware of that. So pulling one quote from an economist, uh, J.K. Galbraith, he said, faced with choices between changing one's mind and proving there is no need to do so, almost everyone gets busy with the proof. So um, are we really open-minded and reasonable and logical, open to evidence? Um, or is there an inclination in us that we will uh, first try to defend our position and not be open? Uh, we tend to defend our position because what we want is strong and it's shaped how we think. So there are different ways that uh, people are talking about this these days. So Jonathan Haidt, the psychologist at NYU, um, he, one of the images he gives in one of his books is, is what he calls the elephant and the rider, where, where the... Um, uh, the, the way that he says uh, people for the last several hundred years has, have conceived of things where our emotions are kind of like the elephant and the, the logical reasoning brain is like the rider who then comes in to guide the elephant. But what he's saying is an elephant is quite big, strong, heavy, and dangerous, and you can't just plop a human being on top of an elephant and expect it to go where you want it to. And so uh, it, his raising the question are our logical, reasonable minds really powerful and influence enough to get our emotions and our desires in order? And if you, if you look at current theories about human development, where before we have language, before we could articulate what we want, we have feelings. Infants are hungry, so they cry. They're able to communicate before having language. And so a lot of people are assuming these days that, um, that the way that we work is we intuit first, we desire first, we want first, and then the function of our reason is to rationalize um, what we want. We, we organize our reason around our desires rather than what we often think we're doing, which is using, using our re reason to keep our desires in check. And so, so the problem here, of if we're alienated from God, it means that even in particular areas where we are being reasonable, we're being clear, um, 
it's still part of our life system. So we could be deceived on a particular line of reasoning, or at the end of the day, if we're right in a particular area, the question is, well, how does it all come back together? And the picture of the Bible is if, if we as a people are alienated from the life of God, whatever true things we discover, whatever right analysis we have, somehow we're not gonna put it together in a way that leads to thriving. So for all of our advanced learning, we still are concerned about war in the world. We know that war is problematic. We have all these techniques for finding peace. And yet there's something that we still um, aren't able to, to navigate that. There's an interesting play I saw some years ago called Copenhagen. And it's, it's an imagining about a real event between two physicists, uh, Werner Heisenberg and Niels Bohr. And apparently, I think this was around 1941, Heisenberg, who is German, went to Denmark during World War II. And he arranged a meeting with Bohr because they were old friends and colleagues. And apparently what happened was they went out for a walk. And when they came back, Bohr was furious. Uh, Heisenberg left, and then they didn't have anything to do with each other. And the question is, what happened? So this play, Copenhagen, sort of speculates on the kind of conversation that they could have had. Um, you know, the kinds of questions that come up, which is, hey, we're, we're both committed to science. and We just want to, uh, to go where the research leads us. We want to discover as much as we can. But right now, we're in differing nations. And we're on the cusp, perhaps, of finding something that could be utterly destructive to humanity. So to what degree could those two individuals have that conversation? So was the nature of the conversation trying to subtly feel out what the other person knows where their research is? Um, would one of them have thought, if they're not far along in their research, I'm going to stall my research, hoping to avoid um, coming up with with a solution to building such a destructive bomb until the war is over. But if I get the sense that they have the information we don't have, I don't want anyone to have this dangerous information, but if somebody's going to have it, wouldn't we want to have it first? Really interesting to, to, to think of, of, here are two individuals that, that um, were for each other in their professions, but they inhabited context where we're simply doing what they by principle wanted to do, the implications were so tremendous that there's all these interesting questions to come up of what, what was the nature of that interaction? And that's where everything we do in the world, uh, particular things are subject to our biases, um, but we could get so much right and yet pull it together and it becomes quite a problem. And, and, and here's the thing, we live in real time. So we have to get used to functioning in a world where we don't know, where we don't understand, how do we navigate that? Um, especially when we're all filled with our corrupt desires and that overcomes us. I think the, the COVID period, that first year during, uh, during uh, the sheltering in place of, or whatever the phrase was, our isolation, was very interesting because as most people, uh, people like myself who are not engaged in the science world, you're, you tend to deal with things after it's been sort of present, you know, when I was taking science in high school or, or college, you know, here's something that we figured out 30 years ago and we've researched it and we've tested it again and again and we're presenting it to you. But now in real time, we're having to function without core information. There's, there's certain things we don't know, but we're trying to make decisions about the best of the occasion and the breakdown in trust where people then became very uh, skeptical 
of what is claimed to be science is really politics. And now we're turning against one another, we're getting fearful. And, and to find out in real time, you're missing some essential information. And rather than saying, why don't we do the best we can with the information we have, our anxiety got the most of us, our frustration, our polarization got the most of us, so we started to turn against one another. What the Bible is presenting is key information about life, the meaning of life, we don't have. And so we're in real time trying to figure out. And so we can have our theory of what happens after we die. We can have our theories about whether or not God exists. We can have our theories about whether or not there's some ultimate justice to people get away with things. Or actually, is there genuine accountable, accountability? We, we may have our theories on these things, but we're not agreed on them. And therefore, in real time, when we're not getting what we want or we're starting to fear things, um, we're not, we don't have the capacity to hold it together, to move forward. And so we have to deal with darkened understanding. We, we don't fully understand that it's not simply that the problem is ignorance, that we lack information, but that we're filtering information through desires, some of which have been, become corrupted. And therefore, um, what, what Jesus is saying is not that the life, having life with God will make you more intelligent and more accurate on all of your information. Um, but it will start to give you a context so that the things that you don't know um, or the pieces that you do know can start to come together so that your life is characterized very differently, not by envy, factions, slander, immorality, destructive behaviors and experiences, but you're called into a new reality that is meant to renew all things so that what becomes possible is joy and peace and being built up. And so we're invited to, to leave one path and enter a, a path that is going a different place and should start to be characterized by a different way of life. So I'm gonna to move to the third thing I'm gonna talk about, which is a renewed life with God. So we have corrupt, deceitful desires, we have darkened understanding. But what Jesus is saying is there's a possibility of renewed life with God. The problem is we're alienated from God. Somehow solving that will bring renewal into the areas of our lives that most need them. And so when we think of, of when Jesus comes and he says, follow me, what is he teaching us? What did he do for us? I'm going to highlight three things in this passage that um, now it sounds like we're going to the sermon within the sermon. Um, if you were able to, to stay with the thread line of inception, I will not lose you here, but, but we are in the third section, but I just have three brief things that I think give a picture of what Jesus is saying is if, if, you, if you come to life with me, it will start to, to bring change to certain areas. The first is alienation from life with God, the life of God. Verse 18, that's a key problem. We are alienated from the life of God. And so um, in Christianity, we are not given the rules so that God will then come back. We are not given uh, the steps you take so that you could find God. We're told that the problem is so deep that there, there's nothing we can do, but that Jesus comes to us to find us. It's not that we can find God on our own, but that God comes and finds us to deal with that alienation problem. And the remarkable thing about Christianity, it's not simply the extent of God's care, that he's committed enough to fixing this problem by taking the initiative to come and find us. He doesn't come with an explanation. He doesn't come with a threat. 
he sends Jesus into the world to bring reconciliation, and he does that through his own alienation. So that's the interesting thing about the Christian story. You read the Gospels. What did Jesus say or do that got people so angry? He announced good news. He shared with the poor. He healed diseases. He included those who were marginalized. He's the picture of the kind of person you would think we would uphold, and yet we got furious and crucified him. It shows our darkened understanding. Jesus comes not only to bring the presence of God, but to teach us the way of God. And we so misunderstood it that we rejected him. The problem is so deep that only God can fix it. And that's the power of Christianity, which is the nature of the God we're alienated from is so good that not only does he come to find us, not only does he come to enlighten us, not only does he come to teach us, but he bears that alienation himself, that the alienation from, uh, from humanity uh, we do what's in our control to, to reject him. The idea is Jesus experienced that so we wouldn't have to. Jesus suffered uh, that separation, that hostility, that abandonment, that torture, so that he can lead us through, and that doesn't have to become our ultimate fate or way of life. So the alienation problem is met through reconciliation. Jesus comes and he gives himself so that life with God is possible. Forgiveness is extended. And then a second thing is uh, the passage talks about new creation. Well, if there's something so spoiled and wrong in us, what could we do? How do you fix that? And Jesus' answer is he's making things new so much that don't try to drag in all of the things from your old way of life, but just leave it behind. Because the God who in Genesis 1, through his spirit, created life and gave us a mandate to be fruitful and multiply, has now come in to recreate. So verse 24, we're called to put on a new self. So that's going to be the focus of next week. We're called to put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This Genesis 1 and 2 reality of human beings that image God. Uh, but yet the corruption has made it so you can't see the reality of God and his goodness in each person. And yet it's there. Every human being made in God's image. There's value. There's dignity. There's such anger and envy and bitterness that we don't see it. And Jesus comes to bring new creation, a spiritual work, that same spirit that breathed life into Adam from the dust, making him a living being who was to look something like God. Now we can be new creation. So Paul, who writes this, is saying, don't keep trying to live the old way and fix it, but enter into this new creation way of life and experience it because that's where you're going to come alive. And then the third thing I'm just going to highlight from this passage is spiritual renewal in our minds. So part of the problem is darkened understanding. Part of the problem is an ignorance. And part of the solution is not simply that he teaches us principles, but that the spirit renews our minds. So as corruption is being dealt with, as good is set before us so that we desire it, we start to think differently. Um, and so in verse 23, that is the, the charge, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Come into this new way of life. Don't simply uh, pick and choose what you like with Jesus, but actually trust him because if he is with you and the life of God is at work in you, it's gonna renew you so that you desire new things and you start to think and understand in new ways. And so verse 21 says, as the truth is in Jesus, that's one of those things that's hard for people to understand, that, that when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, he's truly talking about himself as a teacher and what he can tell us. 
But he's not saying if you simply um, get the information I can offer, you can get your life together. Uh, God sends the truth not in a proposition or in an argument, but in a person. And so we're told that we need to trust the person because we need to know far more than what could be bound together in one book, one teaching manual. We need somebody who's with us in real time, whose spirit is renewing us so that the corruption that may be natural to us or is certainly around us is not shaping how we're thinking, but that we're walking with somebody who's gonna teach us and lead us so that we can live differently. And so the truth is in Jesus. And then Paul's invitation is for us to be in Jesus. That's how we get rooted in the truth. That's how things start to come together. That's how we start to understand things. And there's a contrast in the way of life that's natural to us and the calling to which he's inviting us into. The problem in verse 18, all of these things are due to the hardness of heart. We have these hardened hearts where God is outside, corruption is inside, and it's an environment for problems to grow. But verse 32 encourages us, be kind, tender-hearted. The, the work of the Spirit is to break the hard heart, to, to remove the sin, the frustration, the corruption that alienates us from God so that God comes into our lives and therefore being renewed, given wisdom to see that it's worth our coming into the life of God. Our hearts are no longer hardened, but we're tender-hearted and it changes our character. We think differently. We start to feel different. We start to become renewed human beings. And so um, the, the Christian perspective is not simply that your main thing is to, to, to see your corrupt desires and restrain them, but is to replace those desires with new desires that are good. And so part of the Christian life is to recognize our corrupt desires and restrain them. You now have a perspective where you're like, I know that my envy is gonna lead me to say something slanderous. And because I know gossip is wrong, I'm gonna choose not to do it. But the, but the nature of life is not a battle against something in us, but, but a pursuing something that could be growing with greater sense. And so, so over time, as we mature, it should be less of a fight not to say that thing and more of a mindset shift where you realize there's actually a better way that I could love people even if I grapple with envy for them. And so it's not simply that I have to restrain the terrible thing that I wanna say, but I wanna look for something good that I can say. I want my words to contribute life into the world. And as those habits are being formed, which are not easy and it's not instant, but it's essential that we do this, we're told that, that renewal happens. So we don't wind up uh, becoming people that are just more and more frustrated because of what we're restraining. Well, we're people who are invited to, to develop new desires, to see the grace of God and how wonderful it is. And, and having life with God gives us a new vision for what's possible. And therefore, the power of those old desires lessens. Their control over us, our need to battle with them decreases. And where we're still struggling, we have some energy and reserves to resist because of the life of God in us. I'm um, currently reading a memoir of, of a Christian who is writing about his battles with mental illness. And it's interesting hearing the kinds of insights he's had, um, both in terms of how he's grown in terms of the necessity of, of trusting God, but also how in situations that he never could have imagined facing, that trust in God sustained him and brought him through. And so, for example, the way he describes himself, I didn't know much about this individual trying to get his, the, the, uh, before getting the book, but 
he seems intelligent. He has two graduate degrees. Uh, one of the ways that he described himself is, is he's a thinker. He's always analyzing. And, and part of his sense of identity and how he engaged the world was, was through that, if he could understand things and explain things. But then what happens when your mind is no longer reliable? And that's your identity. That's your strength. He went into a period of great confusion. And even though he was Christian going in, he realized that his, his trust was not in God, who had shown him out of reason, but his trust was in his reason, so that when his reason uh, disintegrated, he was utterly insecure until he landed with his trust in God, and then he was stabilized. That's just one person's experience, but this is what he writes. I'm gonna read a paragraph from his book. He says, I had thought when I was first in that psych ward that it was my sanity that the Lord had sworn himself to protect. My thoughts needed to be right because I was my thoughts. If they were bad, I was bad. If they were heinous, I was heinous. If I had scary feelings, I was scary. I hadn't considered and still have a hard time understanding that my trust is much more precious to him than my sanity. That it honored him more than my feelings, the feelings I didn't like and the thoughts I couldn't control. My trust was more precious than what I could be made to see and feel. In the fresh hearing of the gospel, I was not rescued from the appearance and power of awful thoughts and feelings, but only from the trust I had in them. This is one person's experience, but I think it's instructive because a lot of us feel that we have very weak faith and the reality is we have very strong faith. The question is, what is our faith in? Jesus is saying, what will ultimately ground you is to have a strong faith in me, and not simply because I say things that are convincing, but because I'm trustworthy. I've come to, to invite you. I've given myself for you, and I will be with you through thick and thin. And if you believe that the truth is somewhere in there, that the life of God is in there, then we're prepared to endure the unpredictable, the confusing, the hard, the challenging. Where here's somebody who the benefit of his intelligence was it had done him so well for so long until he realized that he hoped in that and his hope was not in something that was secure. And so when he realized fundamentally he wasn't what he felt, he wasn't what he could control and understand, but he was who God called him to be. He was able to get through an extended period of confused feelings, of confused thoughts. And that's the possibility of getting grounded in, in a reconciled life to God. It's not that all things instantly come together, but what we're told is this is where life is. This is where uh, you will prosper, you will grow, you will have hope. This is where change can really happen in a more thorough way. And so Paul writes, urging the Ephesian church, don't try to live a life with two feet, uh, one in each world. Because what you're going to do is you're going to minimize the, the power of the spirit to renew you. But actually, don't look for your identity within. Don't believe what everybody around you is telling you. But draw near to Christ. You can trust him. And he will teach you. He will show you. He will walk with you. You know, for us as a church, um, in a place like New York City, people have strong opinions, strong convictions, clear, defined goals. And we're not meant to withdraw from the city to protect ourselves. And so let's go into the city and be part of it and try to learn and try to grow and try to do great things. 
But there's a mindset that we can easily get caught up in that may be different depending on your own social sphere or your own career or whatever it is that people around you are aspiring to do. To have a counter community in the city that comes and says at the end of the day, the real anchor of who you are and what life is meaningful uh, and, and what, what the nature of what's going on in the world is defined by, let's, let's not do that out there apart from God. But let's come and be a people in the presence of God we're seeking to, to grow in this new way of life. And therefore, um, we need Christ, we need the Spirit, we need the promises of the Father. But by God's design, we need one another so we can encourage each other in these things. So we can practice living this alternate way of life where we say we're gonna try to remain kind and tenderhearted and not harden and turn against one another because that's what's natural to all societies. Can we be a God-focused society based on grace and work that out. I think that's the possibility we have for actually sustaining life in New York City. For those of you who will be here a long time, uh, don't go out alienated from God, but uh, go into the world with God, and he will change the way you think and see and experience things. Let me pray for us. Our Father, um, we have so much to learn. We have so much to grow, and these things are not easy. We still battle our corrupt desires, our confused thoughts. And yet we long for clarity, we long for peace, we long for strength. And um, Lord, thank you that you promise ultimately those things are ours. Grant us by your spirit the faith to trust Jesus with the next steps in our lives so that we are anchored more in what will really produce life and that we are letting go day by day of what we're holding on to that's inadvertently killing us. And so Lord, open our eyes to your grace, bear patiently with us, but renew us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.